Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 120. Psalm 120, and you'll notice at the very top of this psalm that we have the words, a song of ascents, A-S-C-E-N-T-S, or a song of going ups. What does that mean? This is the first of 15 consecutive psalms in which the worshipers of Israel ascended up into the temple in Jerusalem. It's not a joyous song. It's not a beautiful song. It's a harsh, discordant song. But it gets going up to the temple going as people come out of their lives of distress, difficulties, and problems to come to the privilege to worship the Lord. Let me read this to you. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows, with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. We look around the world today, and what a sight we see. Lawlessness, corruption, profane language, disrespect of authority, immorality. Here in the United States of America, what a society we are seeing in these days. Now much of the situation may seem to be new. I'm sure there are many in our country we're thinking, it's never been this bad. It's never been this horrible. But such matters means you don't have a very good understanding of history. Even back in the time of the Old Testament, these kinds of things were going on. Psalm 120 is the cry of the soul who, as he sings this song, finds a great contrast before, between his own experience and the world around him. But it's very helpful for us, even in 2020, to understand what the psalmist is saying here. As we go through this, from time to time I'm going to be reading the translation of a fellow named Eugene Peterson. He's, it's not a strict translation of the Hebrew, but it kind of encapsulates, summarizes what these verses are saying, and I hope you'll find that helpful to you. What's one of the things we see when we look around us today? Lying deceit. Lying deceit. The allusions here in the psalm, we're not sure exactly what the psalmist has in mind. Slander, perhaps, flattery, insincere promises, falsehoods, perhaps one of these or more or all of them. In any case, he cries out for deliverance. Deliverance. 
deliverance from these lying lips and deceitful tongues. We've been told lies ever since we can remember, or we have told lies ourselves. Such lies that are around still are humans basically are nice and good. Everyone is born innocent and self-sufficient. The world is really a pleasant, nice place in which to live. It's a harmless place. We're born free so we can do what we want. Any difficulties are due to someone else's fault. I'm okay, and you're okay. Ideas like this come from advertisers, entertainers, psychologists, all kinds of religionists, moralists, and politicians. We read letters to the editor. And many times we read some of these letters and we think that's not right. They're saying something about the Bible, about the church. They're completely off base. It's a complete falsehood. Yet there they are. How small but how powerful is the tongue. Quick, burning, and piercing. In James chapter 3, James writes, The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. We can identify with that, can't we? Down in the Medford area, just a little small fire started in Ashland. And the devastation that it brought about was remarkable. James goes on. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And a good part of that deadly poison are lies and deceitful tongues. Someone has said that an unbridled tongue is the chariot of the devil wherein he rides in triumph. I'm sure many of you have heard this phrase, while truth is putting on its shoes, a lie has gone all around the world. And let's not forget lying deceit practice against Christianity. Ridicule, criticism, mean-spirited comments. And this is more intense because we live in an information age in which all kinds of things are said by all kinds of people. To one who holds conversations, said Alexander McLaren, let me back up here, Alexander McLaren lived a long, long time ago, but what he says is quite relevant. To one who holds conversation with God, there's nothing more appalling or more abhorrent than the flood of empty, deceitful talk which drowns the world. Times have not changed. Eugene Peterson summarizes verse 2 this way, Deliver me, O Jehovah, from the liars. They smile so sweetly, but lie through their teeth. The world of the psalmist, the world around us today, remember, was the very same world that the Son of God came into. He came into a world of lying deceit. Began with King Herod. Tell me where this child is so I may come and worship him also. It continued in his public ministry with the deceit of the Jewish religious leaders. Through the deceit of his betrayal and trial, what a mock of, mockery of justice that was. 
through his suffering up until his death. And if you're a believer this morning, he came into that world for you. He came into the world for sinners like us, that we might have eternal life. A second thing we notice as we look around us in the world today is unpunished evil. Verses 3 and 4. No justice, no penalties, all kinds of evildoers getting away with what they do. We seem helpless to do anything about it. The psalmist felt that way. Charles Spurgeon wrote, we can ward off the strokes of a cutlass, but we have no shield against a liar's tongue. We do not know who was the father of the falsehood, nor where it was born, nor where it has gone, nor how to follow it, nor how to stay its withering influence. We are perplexed and know not which way to turn. And that was the situation with the psalmist. He had to be frustrated, frustrated with the lying deceit all around him. Any retaliation seemed impossible. Like a skunk that gives out its terrible odor. You've been driving down the highway, and suddenly you smell something, and you say, oh, skunk. Skunk must have been hit. And that odor stays for a very long time. Likewise, the lies and deceitful tongues of people stays for a very long time. It goes on and on. As for the psalmist, we experience all kinds of evil, don't we? We see it, we hear it, and we want it punished. Not just punished, but punished immediately when we recognize the evil before us. James and John, when the Samaritans didn't welcome Jesus like they thought they should have, James and John said to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call fire down and just take care of them right away? And of course, Jesus rebuked them for that. And then during the time of his betrayal, as the Roman soldiers reached out to seize Jesus, Peter rips out his sword and cuts off the servant's ear as if to say, no one's taking our master if I can help it. Felt probably good about dealing with this right away, but of course Jesus said, put your sword away. It's not the way to do it. In my second church, I was working one day in the parkway. They had church had planted some plants in the parkway. And I was down on my knees doing something, pulling weeds, whatever it was, and a teenage boy walked by. And I looked up at him, and he looked at me, got a little smirk on his face, and he just walked over and just started stepping on some of the plants. <laughs> and he turned with a smirk on his face, continued on his way. As I recall, I said something like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And you know what I wanted to do in that moment? Call down fire from heaven <laughs> on somehow to punish him. But I realized, no, he'll have to account for that, the final judgment. One reason we like to deal with evil, wish we could do it right away, is we were so conditioned with television programs and movies and reread books in which rather quickly the crime is solved 
and the evildoers punished. But in our real life, we find that so often it doesn't happen that way. The evil goes on and on. So the best the psalmist can do here is turn all this back upon the evildoers. Verse 3, what shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? This is in the form of an Old Testament oath formula, which the person in effect is saying, if I don't fulfill my responsibilities, may judgment, punishment come upon me. For example, in 2 Samuel chapter 3, when David was in a fast, all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. I cannot go back on my vow, on my oath. In 1 Kings 2, 23, King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me and more also if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. He had made a vow and a commitment they called upon God to bring wrath upon him if he did not fulfill that commitment. So that's what the psalmist is speaking about here. He says, you know, sometime punishment is going to come to you folks that are doing this evil. Your motives and activities are displeasing to the Lord God. And we, as God's people, recognize there are times when we feel very frustrated because we cannot deal like we wish we could with evil. One reason we feel that way is because we don't belong to this world of evil. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Hebrews 11.13, talking about the patriarchs. These acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I don't know about you, but there have been times when I've been in a circumstance in which I feel very uncomfortable because of the, the evil around me. It's not necessarily a, an external evil. It's not something very strong, but it's just the way people are talking and what they're doing, their attitudes, and I feel very uncomfortable with that. And I'm reminded of the little, uh, little song, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. But if you think we have it bad, think of Jesus. The alienation during his life. And so, if I might have gone too, long, too far here, got the wrong page. Let me go back to page two. Verse, let's go back now to verse 4. That's where we need to go. It continues, this explains and answers the question of verse 3. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. What's that about? Arrows are being directed against the psalmist, his experience. But the time will come, he thinks, when God's arrows will come. The warrior here, described there at the beginning of verse 4, of course, is the Lord himself. Isaiah 49, 26, I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Coals of the broom tree. Whatever this broom tree was, we understand that it was not a tree that would burn quickly, but like thorns in the flame that burn very slowly. 
that took a long time to burn. So the picture here is war arrows hardened over red-hot charcoal. Now, evil people never dream of any kind of divine vengeance coming upon them, waiting for them, but it surely will come, if not in this life, at the final judgment. Peterson writes for these two verses, Do you know what's next? Can you see it coming, all you barefaced liars? Pointed arrows and burning coals will be your reward. Jesus really had to fight against the temptation to punish evildoers as for what they deserved, to give them immediate retribution upon that evil, those, their evil deeds. For example, in Matthew 26, Peter, shortly after the incident with the sword, cutting off the ear, Peter stretched out his hand, drew his sword, we, we had seen that, but now Jesus, in a couple of verses later, says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me twelve legions of angels? And you wonder how many times in His life, especially in His public ministry, as in this world around Jesus, this evil, sinful world, all the terrible things that were being said about Him and about His people, there were times when Jesus was tempted to just forget it and leave this world and go back to His heavenly Father especially at this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, being betrayed by Judas and being seized and having to face the coming trial and crucifixion. At that moment, being tempted to call the angels to come down and take care of it. Thankfully, he did not. He withheld, he did not give in to that temptation, but he went forward that he might satisfy divine justice, which we need because we could not do it, undergo it ourselves. A third thing we notice in the world around us is the feeling of estranged alienation in verse 5. Strange verse. Peterson very simply says, I'm doomed to live in Meshach, cursed with a home in Kedar. What was Meshach? Well, he actually was a grandson of Noah, a son of Japheth, but that's not the main idea here. It was a tribe inhabiting the highlands to the east of Cilicia. And later the tribe went a little further north toward the Black Sea. Kedar was also a tribe descending from Ishmael. And they were Bedouins living in the Arabian desert on the outskirts of Palestine. Both these tribes were savage and barbarous, and very pagan, and very evil. So the psalmist is doing what? He's looking around the world, and he says, you know, I really feel alienated, because I feel like I'm living with savages, and barbarians. I look at several of the terrible things that are done, in our, just in our situation, what's been going on in Portland for days, and other places. The looting, the rioting, breaking windows and setting fires and smashing cars and all of this. We're living in that. The psalmist felt he was living among savages even in his day. Not that he actually dwelt in Meshach or Kedar. Here in Israel I live in the midst of hoodlums. 
I feel alienated. I don't really belong here. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Have you ever felt that way? Looking around you at what's going on, you say, this is terrible. Yes, the Lord has given me many benefits, many blessings, but my, what is happening? I don't belong with those kinds of people. Or you may be in a situation in your neighborhood or the place of employment, and you're rubbing shoulders with people and the way they talk and speak, their attitudes, and you realize, I, I just feel completely alienated from these people. Charles Spurgeon again, to quote him, Those who defame the righteous are worse than cannibals, for they only eat men after they are dead, but these wretches eat them up alive. Our citizenship is in heaven, as I said. Into this world came Jesus. He had to live a perfect, holy life in an imperfect, unholy world. If he was not the eternal Son of God, he could not possibly have done that. If he had not been born of a virgin, he would have inherited Adam's nature. But instead, he received the, the seed of the Holy Spirit himself. And thankfully, he did that. What a thing for the Son of God to willingly give up the glory of heaven while remaining divine he took upon himself human nature and came to our world the world around us that we even see today there's words of an old hymn begins this way out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe only his great Eternal love could make my Savior go. One more thing we want to look at. As we look around the world around us, we see lying deceit. We see unpunished evil. We feel a strange alienation. And surely we see hostile conflict. Verses 6 and 7. Peterson summarized it this, this way. My whole life has been lived camping among quarreling neighbors. I am all for peace. But the minute I tell them so, they go to war. Here in this psalm is a peace-loving man. I talked about peace a little bit last week. Remember at the end of our text with a lady that reached out and touched Jesus? His last words to her were, go in peace. Hebrew has the idea of shalom. Not just cessation of hostilities, but more positively, good health, prosperity, happiness, and especially a right relationship with the Lord. That's shalom. He says there in verse 7, I am for peace. But before that, he has said in verse 6, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. The Hebrew is simply, I, peace. I am a man of peace. I love peace. I'm for it. I'm willing to be at peace. I desire peace to fill my soul. I want my world to be peaceful. 
But what does he find? Look at the last word of Psalm 120. War. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The world around him. So Psalm 120 ends with this shrill dissonance of conflict and chaos and turmoil and tumult. Those who dwelt with him not only hated him, but the psalmist says they hate peace itself. Look around the world today. If there's anything going on, it's hostile conflicts of all kinds. So the human heart is not changed. It's still at enmity with God and very much at enmity with fellow, their fellow men. Warlike dispositions. No peace proposal or idea satisfies them, only hostility. Ever ready to pick a fight, not just among nations, that's bad enough, not just in our country and cities, that's bad enough, but in the various aspects of our life, in the church, in our homes, in marriages, in business, in athletic contests. There's always this enmity. You can feel that, that, that tension, that fighting going on, bitter accusations, verbal warfare. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5.20, talking about the works of the flesh. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. How much of that is going on in our world today as we look around us? Much of this is directed toward Christianity toward Christian churches, toward individual believers, stirred up by the evil one with whom the Prince of Peace himself has to fight against. Think of his many conflicts he had with the scribes and the Pharisees and the fellow Jews of his day. You read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you find time and time again they tried to trick him. They, they said false things against him. And Jesus had to endure that Many times he came right back at them with the truth and confronted them. Thankfully, he did that. Culminating at the cross of Christ, as Paul says, at that point, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. And that's the way he reconciled us, we're his enemies, to be friends with God through Jesus and only through him. The world around us, lying deceit, unpunished evil, estranged alienation, hostile conflict. So what is the answer? We go back to verse 1. Verse 1. In my distress, as we look around the world today, Let's face it, we have a lot of distress. We are very unhappy at what we see happening. What do the psalmist do? In my distress, I called to the Lord. In the Hebrew text, the words to the Lord are first. To the Lord, in my distress, I called. That's what I knew I had to do to deal with the world around me. Now, our prayers should be more 
than coming to the Lord in times of distress. We do that. In fact, possibly that's what really drives us to prayer when we face something that we see around the world or we face a particular problem in our life that's beginning to overwhelm us. To the Lord we go in prayer, and that's perfectly proper. But of course, we know prayer also involves praise and thanksgiving, and praying for one another, and praying for others in this evil world. Notice that he also goes on to say, and he answered me, past tense. He's aware that previously God had delivered him, and so once again, he comes to the Lord, Lord, I've got more distress. (laughs) I'm coming to you again. And he remembers a time when the Lord did answer him. In Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6, the psalmist there writes these words, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. We don't know how the Lord answered the psalmist here for Psalm 120. Often we're not even sure how the Lord answers us. But my understanding is that we have to believe that the Lord always answers our prayers, that is, He always responds to us and works through our prayers in some mysterious way to accomplish His purposes. Remember, our prayers always must be, Thy will be done. And God carries out His will and does what ultimately is best for us, even though it seems like He's not answering. So we have to hold on to that. He gives us assurances. He gives us scriptural insights. He provides for us promises. He builds us up spiritually in ways we didn't expect. So what lies ahead for us as we face the world around us in the coming week? Well, as with Old Testament Israel, who are a pilgrim people, we are a pilgrim people. This world is not our home. But the church has to journey through a battlefield of falsehoods and violence through a labyrinth of all kinds of sinful influences. But as we do that, something should be happening. There should be a longing for the sacred place, a longing for where we really belong in the house of God. Woe is me that I am Meshach, am a sojourner so long, that I in tabernacles dwell in Kedar that belong. My soul with him that hateth peace has long a dweller been. I am for peace, but when I speak for battle, they are keen. My soul distracted mourns and pines to reach that peaceful shore where all the weary are at rest and troubles vex no more. A person has to be thoroughly disgusted at what we see in the world around us to set out on the Christian way. One has to be fed up with what we see to acquire an appetite for the world of grace, the world of true peace, the world the Lord has promised to us through our faith in Jesus. Psalm 120, then, is a song sung by such a person. It's a song that Jesus sang 
when He is on our world, in this world. And it's a song that we should sing as well. Join me in prayer. <clears throat> Father, indeed, we look at the world around us. We see the television news. We read our newspapers. We hear our radios. We hear all kinds of terrible, terrible things happening. And you have put into our hearts and minds eternity. There's something more. There's something better. And that's where the gospel comes in. That Jesus has brought us from darkness to light. That he has brought us as being, as being enemies to being friends with our Creator. And so, Father, as we face the days ahead of this very week, we pray you keep us from discouragement, keep us from frustration, help us to remember that, indeed, this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Give us the strength we need to do that. And we shall praise and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.